welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. All right, all right. Well, guys, welcome once again. Uh, Whether you're online, whether you're in the house today, happy Father's Day. Hope you guys get celebrated well today. Uh, Father's Day is one of my favorite days because normally, not this year, but normally, Father's Day is always steak day. And uh, come on, I love steak day. No, no, ladies, don't make quiche. Don't make quiche on Father's Day, okay? It's got to be something manly. Manly. Hey, so I, I thought it'd be fun, you know, just to kind of to share some manly things, you know what I mean, on, on Father's Day. And, and so, you know, I looked, I searched, and I found this list of manly things on Father's Day, okay? And this is really from the leader in manly content, Cosmopolitan Magazine, <laughs> which I'm sure is on every man's subscription list, absolutely. So, this is pretty good, though. Number one. Manly things, beards. Hairiness is basically another word for manliness. Number two, big dogs. If we could, we'd have wolves and we'd ride them around all the time, all right? Number three, cars and trucks, jacked up trucks here in Oklahoma, all right? Big loud muscle cars and trucks that guzzle gas and go faster than we would ever need to go to go to the store to get your feminine products for you, ladies. Steaks, like I meant, it's right on the list, guys, steaks. And maybe it's because eating big slabs of red meat reminds you of your predatorial ancestors that would hunt in the jungles. And the only thing manlier than a steak is two steaks. (laughs) Leather jackets, you can blame Indiana Jones for that. Wrestling and fighting. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about wrestling and fighting, but it helps us show how strong we are. Me and my best friends, we used to just strap on the boxing gloves and just beat the out of each other all of the time when we were young. I don't know why, but we loved it. My son literally came home this week and said, Dad, we played sting pong, pong today. And I'm like, sting pong? He's like, oh yeah, we just basically take up the ping pong and you just slap it as hard as you can and just see who has the most red dots. This is what men do. Come on, this is what fathers do. Number eight, football. Bunch of dudes, come on, grabbing at a bunch of other dudes. Violence, come on, we love this stuff. Huddles, how can you not? And besides, it's, it's manlier than soccer. I mean, Matt, I'm sorry. I don't know where you're at. My coach used to say, see those guys over there playing soccer? You don't have to have arms to play soccer. <laughs> sorry, Matt. Bruce Willis, come on, he was in Die Hard. You know what I'm saying? Number 11, lumberjacking, the manliest profession possible. Eating bacon, growing beards, chopping things down with an ax, enough said. And for those of us who can't be lumberjacks, flannel. Being good at something stupid, we're competitive to a fault. Yep, who can eat the most slices of pizza? It doesn't really matter how sick we get afterwards, because as long as we're vomiting as champions, we're good, okay? And lastly, man caves. Yes, man caves. We fill these places up 
with the manliest stuff we can get so that no woman would want to come down. Giant TVs, sports memorabilia, animals on the wall, a personal fridge with food from like five weeks ago, and we'd probably leave some, some socks, some old socks on the floor just to make sure the aroma is right. So we're the only ones down there. And then we have a good cry. This is where we do it. All right. Well, this morning, hey, we are continuing in our series. There's more. At the end of yourself, there's more. And the title of the message today is More Humility in a Culture of Pride. I'm actually really excited about this message, guys, and in particularly fathers, soon-to-be fathers, spiritual fathers, boys who one day are going to have the influence of a father. And ladies, this doesn't mean that, the, that it's not appropriate for you or it's not adaptable to your life as well, but I've never got to preach on Father's Day before. So, come on, I'm going to speak a little bit more to the fathers today, to the men today. And I really believe that if we can get this humility thing in our hearts, that you're going to see, ladies, that this is something that's going to benefit you as much as it's going to benefit them as well. So, ladies, are you ready? Men, fathers, are you ready? Okay. Well, <clears throat> last week we ended on a passage of scripture. Tim talked about justice. And I love this scripture, and it hit me even last week as he was preaching it, and I kind of wanted to follow up on it today. And that scripture was out of Micah. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Say it with me. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Tim did, did an incredible job. If you, have, if you haven't seen that message from last week, go back and watch it. Uh, he really showed why justice is the heart of the, father, of the Father, and that we really as believers need to stand up. And today I really want to follow up on that last line, to walk humbly with your God. And you, you may ask why a message about humility on Father's Day. Well, when we think of a man, and when we think of what our culture puts out regarding what a true man looks like, Humility normally isn't part of that picture, right? There's so many things we're told about being men. You're supposed to be strong, courageous, independent, rich, intelligent, rugged, yet sensitive, a good communicator, yet not too expressive, assertive, but gentle, plus faithful, bold when needed. You're supposed to be the provider, the repairer of all things, and lead at all times in the best way possible. My guess is you've never been told that one of the greatest attributes that you can possess as a father is being a man of humility. This morning, we're going to go to a story in the Old Testament. It's not one we really preach about very often, so I was excited about that. Uh, we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your Bible with you this morning or your phone and you want to pull that up, we will be in 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's the story of Naaman. And we're going to spend some time in this this morning. As a matter of fact, a good portion of the sermon. And we're just going to take it verse by verse. Verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but 
Anytime you see but in the scripture, something's coming. He had leprosy. For all the things that Naaman had going for him, commander of the king's army, one commentary actually noted that Naaman was described in, in the original as a great and honorable man and a mighty man of valor. And what's really interesting about that is there are only four other people in the Bible that that title was given to. Gideon, Jephthah, David, Jeroboam, and Naaman. And he's the only Gentile or non-Jewish person that that title was given to in the Bible. But he had one debilitating weakness, leprosy. Now, for those of you who don't know what leprosy is, it's not really around a whole lot. It is still around in our time. But leprosy starts out as small red dots that turn into white, scaly fleshes of skin. And it normally starts on the head, and as it spreads, it actually turns your hair white, and then your hair begins to fall out. And then your eyebrows fall out. And then your, your nails, the skin around your nails starts to become so loose that your nails fall off. Your gums shrink, and it actually pushes your teeth so your teeth fall out. Until finally, it starts eating away at each one of your joints, starting with your fingers and your toes, and that they would start to fall off one joint at a time. Really a horrible disease. And in Jesus' time, if you had leprosy, if it was a, a walled city, you weren't allowed inside those walls. If it was an open city or an open village, you might be, around, you might be allowed to be around, but you had to be completely covered and you had to be separate from the people. And anytime anybody came near you, you were required to yell, unclean, unclean. So people couldn't come near you. You weren't allowed to say hi to people and people weren't allowed to say hi to you because in the East at that time, a salutation also came with a hug. And so you couldn't get anyone near you. Leprosy was a horribly lonely disease because it separated you from everybody. And here's this valiant commander who has all these men that follow him, and all of a sudden he's got leprosy. And you can imagine he probably started to try to hide it. So we go to verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken, a, taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Don't you know that when you have a disease that's going to take your life, you, you will search anywhere for an answer, right? I found out I had a disease when I was 31 years old called PSC, and it was a liver disease, and I was told within eight years I was either going to get a liver transplant or I was going to die. And that becomes real really fast, right? And so we did everything we possibly could to try and find out who was the best doctor that I could find. And just a total God story, there was a, a snowboarder named Chris Klug. He was in the Olympics. And this, when I first found out I had it, he was in the Olympics that year. So he'd already had the disease, had a transplant, and ended up in the Olympics, which is an amazing story. So when me and Angie got married, we head up to uh, British Columbia to Vancouver to go to uh, Whistler for our honeymoon. And sure enough, in line at the airport, because the world championships were there that year, we crossed 
and stood right next to each other. And I said, Chris? And he's like, yeah, and I, I told him that I had just been diagnosed with PSC, and he's like, oh, you gotta find Dr. Everson. He's the one. Well, here we have Naaman. And Naaman hears that all of a sudden, wait a minute, there's somebody who can cure me of this disease? Let's go to verse four. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. The reason why this is a little bit strange is because you will see in the chapters before in 2 Kings and the chapters after that Israel and this king, they were, they were battling all the time. Now, 2 Kings isn't chronological, so it seems a little weird, if they were, weird that if they were in the middle of war at the time that he would send his commander of his army to him. So most commentators say that this was probably a time where tensions were a little lower when this happened. Okay, so he sends a letter and says, so Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. In our time, it's about $1.2 million. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. And as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a fight with me? Here begins our look at what pride can do. Two signs of pride within the king. Number one, he is easily offendable. Easily offendable. You know, Naaman wasn't even really coming to see the king of Israel. He was to find the prophet who was in Samaria, right? But the king thinks that this is him, which is the second point, is everything is about himself. Okay? Two signs, easily offendable, thinks it's about himself. In verse 8, it says, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Something really important to note is that the king of Israel at that point wasn't a godly man. He didn't really serve God. He may have gone to church. He may have gone to the temple, but he wasn't living or serving the Father in heaven. And so Elisha, even though he probably knew of Elisha, Elisha wasn't even allowed around where the king lived, in the castle, whatever you wanted to call it. So Elisha hears about how the king is making this big deal, and he already knows, this man is here to see me. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a message to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and been cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. 
We're going to pause here. Because Naaman, with all his victories, with all of his stature, with all of his positions and great valor, and this great need that he has, he also has one defining characteristic in his life. And it's about to ruin him. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before the fall. Another translation says, pride comes before destruction. You know, pride is that thing, that sin, that we don't often think about, but it's one that is so prevalent all around us. One that is really a part of our everyday lives. Guys, I know I struggle with pride. Pride is also the sin that the Bible says our Father detests. There's a passage of Scripture in Proverbs 6, 616, if you're writing things down. And it's, it's this, it says there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are detestable. Which basically the first six are the things the Lord hates and the aftermath of those six things are the seventh thing. Okay? Let's look at that passage. The first thing on that list, haughty eyes. The message says arrogant looks, which I really like. But some closer translations are actually proud eyes or eyes of loftiness. Pride. The rest of the list, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and lastly, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So those first six are the things, and what happens when those six play out? They stir up conflict in the community. I want you to notice which one is first on that list. Before even murder on the list. The Lord detests pride. He detests it when somebody thinks too highly of himself or puts himself in a high position in his own mind. And it's not just that he hates it, it's that he knows where it leads. It leads to the fall. It leads to destruction. It leads to being humbled, right? Naaman came to Elisha with a high view of himself, of his position, even of his value to the king. I mean, the king gave him $1.2 million. And he expected others to respond to him with that kind of respect, right? He says, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, wave his hand over the spot, cure me of leprosy? How many times do our expectations of God to do things our way, for our good, precede his ways? Naaman's thinking, I came all this way. The least he can do is come out to see me. Elisha sent a servant. We're not sure why he did that. But instead, a servant tells me to go throw myself in these dirty waters? Or he mentions the other two rivers that are probably much cleaner where he came from. It would have been so much easier if he didn't have to travel that far. If he could have just dipped himself in the water there. And we kind of look at this and we kind of laugh at him like, Ew. but I feel like, man, this is me. This is us. At times, we want God to fit into our little box where things are easy, and when God calls us to do something or be something, 
that we have to go out of our way or even sacrifice some of our own desires, that seems a lot to ask. This is the first sign of pride in Naaman, that he knows better. He knows better than Elisha and even more so God. The second is he's not shown the respect he deserves. He's a really important person, particularly in his own mind. And not just that, I mean, he's got a million dollars. And, and he brought that so he could have this extravagant experience, right? He wants the full meal deal. He wants the fireworks. High priest yelling out, body lifted into the air, filled with God's presence, maybe some sparkles coming down from heaven. He's got it all worked up in his mind of what he deserves. Don't we all? I heard a great message by Kyle Eidelman on humility, and he had this list of five to six ways, um, identifiers, that we could kind of connect with to show that we had pride, or to see that we had pride in our own lives. And I love this list, so I wasn't gonna try and duplicate it. Kyle, come on. Number one, you take everything personally. You might be saying, me? I don't do that. Why is he bringing this up? Easy. (laughs) Someone asks a question, you take it as an indictment. You're easily offended. It's most likely pride. I think it's one of the coolest things about Jesus, guys. And next time you're reading the Gospels, I want you to look at it through this lens. Jesus was not easily offendable. He, he didn't care what others thought of him. He didn't care what they thought about what he was saying. Jesus is just who Jesus was, right? He was comfortable in that. One of Jesus' greatest attributes is that he took no offense, whether people wanted to follow him or they didn't want to follow him. There was no offense. Number two, your feelings are the most reasonable. It would have been so much easier if he would have just told me to stay home and dip myself in my own rivers. That's what's reasonable. I saw this study, uh, it was a few years ago, and it was 1,000 college students, 500 women, 500 men, and it was really just around this idea of are you a genius? And so the questions came back, and the women, about 10% of them had marked, yeah, I'm a genius right? And in all reality, it's really about one to three percent. Now, the men, on the other hand, about 50 percent of them said, yes, I am a genius. I mean, I wouldn't say it out loud, but if you're going to twist my arm, you know what I mean? So, come on, men, fathers, are we really the most reasonable? You know what I'm saying? Number three, your desires are the most important. Do you get upset when your idea in a group doesn't come to fruition and you end up having to do somebody else's idea because it doesn't really feed your desire? Number four, you always think the other person needs to apologize or change. Naaman basically telling the servant of Elisha, someone better fix this, right? Number five is you tend to be negative and critical instead of positive or grateful. And number six, you keep thinking of other people that need to hear this message right now, right? 
you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I'm so glad my spouse is here today. <laughs> or, oh, that coworker, I oh, wish they were here today. There's a passage of scripture in Isaiah 55. It says this, let the wicked man forsake his own way and the unrighteous man his own thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let's get back to the story. Verse 13 and 14 says this. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you to just go wash and be cleansed? Humility and wisdom arrive, yeah. right? And who do they arrive through? The servant. Saying, listen, are, are you literally going to let this moment pass you by? Because you've got so much pride in you that you're not willing to actually do the simplest of things. He might ask you, oh, you've got to go sacrifice, you know, 10 bulls and 20 cows and, and you've got to do all this stuff. And he would have done it and he would have thought, okay, this is what needs to happen. But the simplest of things, go dip yourself in the river seven times and he gets angry and mad. And I love that his servants were the one that came to him. And there's an interesting thought, and guys, this is totally me. And this is just after 13 years of being a pastor. A few weeks ago, I did a message on generosity, and this week on humility. One of the things that I've noticed over these 13 years is sometimes some of the most generous people are the ones that don't have any money. And sometimes the most humble of people are the ones that don't have a high position, or they don't have any stature in society. And they're the ones who are the most humble. And what this tells me is, is that in this room, many of us in this room, we have that stature, or that power, or that position at work. And what that means is we have got to, to concentrate even more to live a life of humility. Because when you get up that ladder, and when your wealth becomes more, it seems like it gets harder and harder. Jesus, Jesus pointed to it. He said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? So we have to literally, we have to dial in on this point, and we have to go overboard when we get to more stature, when we get to more wealth, because otherwise pride will steal your heart. Now speaking of the servants, Aren't you glad when you have people in your life that point up, point out how dumb and unreasonable and prideful at times we can be? You might think this is a bad thing, but let me tell you, I am so thankful for my wife. There's not many people in life that I feel like you're close enough to that who will really tell you, hey, 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 step back for a moment, right? As a parent, there are times, let me tell you, where you're like, I'm going to take him out. You know what I mean? And my wife's always like, hey, hey, murder is a sin. <laughs> you need that, those people in your life that, 
when pride starts to well up inside of us, that go, hey, hey, wait, think, think about it a different way, right? Many times I've wanted to go to my kids and say, oh, you're so, you know, I cannot believe you did this kind of a thing. And my wife would say, funny, I remember your mom telling me you did the same thing and probably like 50 times worse when you were younger. Sometimes pride gets the best of us. And when you have somebody in your corner, somebody you really trust who can be that person to say, hey, drop back, think about it again. Those people are gold in your life. You need those people in your life. Naaman's sermons are like, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Elisha comes out and waves a magic wand or you got to throw yourself in the river seven times. Humble yourself. The goal here is that you might be clean, that you might be pure. Eyes on the prize, Naaman, eyes on the prize. And what does Naaman do? He humbles himself. He slows his roll, checks his spirit, and verse 14 says, he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. When we come to the end of ourselves, there's more, right? There's nothing like a move in a person's life to bring reality to a situation. To take a person with pride and bring him to the edge of humility. I was called into ministry when I was 21 years old. I remember the day, I remember the moment. And for 17 years after that day, I just kind of dipped my water in the pool every once in a while. I led worship, but I didn't want to go into ministry full time. Because what did that mean? It means I wasn't going to be able to make as much money as I wanted to make. You know, I wasn't going to be able to provide for the family that I didn't have at the moment. I had all of these excuses why that wasn't right at that time. So for 17 years, I kind of wandered in the wilderness of doing different things. I led worship as a volunteer on Sunday. So, you know, I kind of stayed connected, but not, not too much. And then when I got that disease... And I got down to where I was days away from dying. And at the last moment, God comes in and he saves me. I was still eighth on the list and he reached up that list with that liver that didn't fit any of the seven people beneath me. And I was, got, I was given that transplant. And after that happened in my life, there was no turning back. It was like a gift of life. And it was after that I went into ministry. And after 17 years, finally listened to what God's ways were telling me to do. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. I think my point in that story is this. You don't have to wait to almost die. <laughs> right? God may be telling you something in life. He may be leading you in a direction. He may be telling you, oh, are you really going my, on my path? Are you really following what the word says? And we've been making excuses. 
for why we can't do that. And maybe what we need is just like Jesus. And we need some humility in our lives. In the end, Naaman was humbled. And he came to a place of great humility before Elisha. I don't have it on the screen, but the story goes on and it says, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. And never again, he promises to Elisha, will I make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. He became a Christian that day. He became a follower of God that day and went back to his homeland in Syria. Guys, we have a choice. We can go the way of Jesus and cultivate a life of humility, or we can get ready to be humbled somewhere down the road. Men, fathers, and ladies, why a message about humility on Father's Day? Because maybe more than any other time that I can remember in history, pride is winning the battle. You don't have to look far. All you have to do is look at our political landscape, look at almost every group of people, social media influencers, that are telling us how we have to be. And if we're not that way, then we're wrong. Everybody's right. Nobody's wrong. And no one is willing to take a stance of humility and come to the middle and say, let's do this together. Or even show any sort of respect for other people and their beliefs. And what is it that is turning society that way? It's pride. Pride has stolen the heart of our country. And God's ways have been set aside. And I'm tired. Seriously, I'm tired. And I'm ashamed in a lot of ways that my kids, this is what they see. They think that this is normal because this is all they've seen, really. My kids who are 16 and 14, for the past 8, 10 years, the landscape has changed. And we as believers and we as followers of Jesus, we should be the ones who are leading the way. Because this is who Jesus was, right? And we want to become more like him. Much like Naaman, Jesus came down from his throne for Naaman serving under the king. Jesus came with support of the Father and the power of heaven behind him. And he could have commanded respect and glory and honor, right? But instead, what did he do? Paul writes this in Philippians. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we come to the end of ourselves. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we come to the end of ourselves, there's more. When we choose Jesus' ways over our ways, there's more. When we choose humility in life over pride, there's more. It's the upside down ways of God. They don't seem right to this culture, but in the end, they're right. Humility cultivates God's power in our lives. So to wrap up this morning, how do we cultivate a life of humility so that God's power can be used in us really quickly? Number one, learn to recognize the signs. Back to that list that I showed you of Kyle Eidelman's. What are those ways that pride pops up in your life? The more that you can recognize those things yourself, and you can make those changes in your own life and stop yourself from letting pride come out, the better. Secondly, who can help? Who can help be accountable in your life? Angie is my gift from God, but I have had others in my life, some great guys that I've worked for, some great bosses. I had a friend of mine one time tell me one of the best words of advice I'd ever heard. So if you really want to know what you're like, go to somebody you respect, somebody that you know won't be spiteful, and ask them the question, who is the me that I can't see? Who is the me that I can't see? Let me tell you, when you ask that question, you better be ready to not be offended. I had hit a wall in my leadership when I had heard that. And a friend of mine said one of the things that was stopping me was pride. And that made all the difference in the world to me. Number two, so number one, recognition of pride. Number two, repentance. Guys, we don't talk about it enough. The practice of repentance, of getting on our knees daily and praying, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for my sins, for pride in my life. The daily practice of repentance before God helps cultivate a life of humility. If you can humble yourself before the Father, you're going to be able to humble yourself in the world. Repentance is simply humbling yourself before a holy God, asking for forgiveness and changing your ways. Realizing that God's ways are better than ours. 
Second Chronicles 7:14 says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land." And the last one, reliance. Reliance on the Holy Spirit. Guys, if we're left to ourselves to try and win this battle between humility and pride, if it's left to us, it's probably not going to happen. Because it's part of our human nature. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible where we see pride show up. We need the Father. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. And that's part of the repentance piece of going to the Lord in prayer, but it's asking the Holy Spirit, show me, Lord, where there's pride. Show me where that I'm acting out in prideful ways. Show me, Lord, your humility, a Jesus kind of humility. Impart that in my life. So number one, recognition, recognizing pride in your life. Number two, the practice of repentance before the Father. And number three, reliance on the Holy Spirit. There's a passage of scripture in Romans 8. It says this, Paul writes, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its, if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. It was Jesus' promise. The moment you invite him into your heart that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to live in you. There's a quote by Andrew Murray, and he was a theologian the early 1900s. And the quote said this, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. That was Jesus. Let that be us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the perfect example of humility in our lives. And as fathers, Lord, living here is hard. This world is hard. It's giving us a different message. But Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. May we have the humility that you had, the way you loved people, the way you cared for people, the way you humbled yourself even to death on a cross for us. Father, 
We need your Holy Spirit. We need your superpower that we might be able to lead in a culture right now where pride seems to be winning the battle. But Father, the war will be yours. Humility will reign. And we lean into you today, that even as fathers, that Father, you will build and cultivate humility in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness for your mercy, for your grace. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.